You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. And welcome any who are visitors. And um, Jill, there's Jill McMillan. Um, and Aaron, who was born a long time ago now, May the 7th. But it's uh, lovely to see uh, Aaron here as well. It's um, the best way that you will get to remember the names of the children in the church and all the new babies is to pray for them, and then you will remember. Um, Can I ask you also to remember Brian Key, who was an assistant here for a while, and he is about to, he's passed all his exams, he's about to be ordained next Friday, and I will be going over to perform that ordination in the Presbytery of Tyrone of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland. And then um, greetings to bring to you from various people who've been in the congregation here. Uh, Ajith Fernando uh, was in, in Poland with us and asking to be remembered to you. Ruth Naomi Floyd from the United States. Uh, ben and uh, Ivan from Slovakia. And there was a lovely man who you, you probably won't know, but when he was here as a student, he was, uh, he was it still is Finnish, um, but he was converted uh, in Dundee and uh, he attended Central, but he said he's always grateful to this city, to the University of Abertay, and he's been to this church as well, and he also sent his greetings. So greetings from all these people. I want to uh, ask a very straightforward question. And maybe uh, to tell you of uh, a man who's 88 years old, his daughter was visiting him, and she wrote me and she told me that having grown up as a Christian, um, becoming a believer very young, becoming an elder in the church, in his life he has witnessed so many things that where the world is now, he could not possibly imagine. Uh, He was actually a teacher of mine. And I think 40 years ago, uh, the hard time that I gave him in many ways, um, unfortunately, I gave him, as did others, the nickname Kojak because we thought he was a detective uh, trying to find out all our sins and troubles uh, in school, which he did very well. Um, but he's now forgiven me. And uh, it was, he, he, as he's coming towards the end of his days, it's a concern, a, a confusion about what's happening in the world. But his daughter was writing to express a deep gratitude that he has, that there are those who still teach the word of God. And I found that very moving in lots of ways, not least because we do live in a confusing world. Just imagine 30 or 40 years from now, things that would be considered totally unacceptable. Do you honestly think that the way things are, they're just going to stay this way? Um, I think that there are those of us who, if God spares us and we're still alive in 30 or 40 years' time, we're going to look back and say, can you believe you know, that we're now where we are? It's difficult to work out what's happening, and people do get very confused. I read a book this week, um, a man called Frankel, Victor Frankel, just an extraordinary book about the uh, meaning of life. Uh, Frankel was an Austrian psychologist, psychiatrist, who... Uh, was in Auschwitz and survived. And he reflects on that. And he says in this, 
Life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler believed, but a quest for meaning. The great task for any person is to find meaning in his or her life. Whether you're eight years old, eight days old, 88 years old, you, that is, what, what is the meaning and what is the purpose? Now, if you were in uh, Babylon almost 3,000 years ago and uh, you were Jewish, you're wondering what is the meaning, what is God doing? And that's what we're looking at in the book of Isaiah. So let's turn to that, Isaiah 43. And we're going to come in at verse 14 of Isaiah 43. <clears throat> I want to read the first few verses. We're just going to go through this chapter and I'll, I'll pause as we do this and just think about it. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. It is the first lesson that God's people need to learn and need to keep relearning. Babylon was where they had been taken into exile. Babylon was the predominant power. Israel was a tiny little nation. Jerusalem was a ruined city. God's people were tiny. They could easily be wiped out. What is going on? And God speaks through Isaiah and he tells them this. Babylon isn't too great. And how he does that is not so much by listing the faults of Babylon, but just by simply contrasting Himself with Babylon, the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the Creator, the King. And he says, this God is going to turn the Babylonian oppressors into refugees. The ships about which they boasted that they could travel and merchandise and they could take their armies. These will be used to take themselves as refugees. And I think that is... Uh, very, very important for those of us who are Christians who at times feel as though things are overwhelming. They are in human terms. They are not in terms of who God is. And that is enormously, enormously important. But as he goes on, this is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Babylon is going to be beaten And the Israelites are going to return. But that's only the beginning for them because they face a long journey, 500, maybe 900 miles, depending on the route taken, through wilderness, four months journey, four months of being attacked by bandits, four months of hardship and danger. And then when they arrive home, they will find that their homes are devastated, a devastated country, a devastated land, and they have to rebuild their lives from scratch. 
Israel had been here before, of course, with the Exodus, hence the references there to what happened at the time of the Exodus. God reminds them of the former things, the way through the sea. But then interestingly, he says, forget the former things. He reminds them, and then he says, forget them. Why? Because as human beings, we have a tendency to idealize the past. Our psychology means that we can idealize the past when the present and the future are too frightening for us. They do need to remember that the wilderness was conquered in the past. But because they remember what God did in the past, they don't live in the past. They go forward to the future. The past is a great place to live because in many ways it's safe and it's secure. I I love reading books. I love reading history books. I love reading about what happened in the past. Not everyone is like that, but for me personally, that's... um, a really important thing, and it's good to learn from the past. But sometimes we can live in the past. Isn't it interesting? You would imagine my own father is uh, in his 80s as well in hospital just now, and you know, when, you, when you're getting older, you do like to think about the past and things that have happened in the past. And in fact, if you think about your conversation, a lot of it is going to be about your experience in the past. And that's a wonderful thing because God has given you that. You've got all these things that have actually happened to you that are not dreams. You've got all these experiences, both good and bad, which teach you and which are real in your life. But there is an an enormous danger that we can fall into this trap of seeking to go back to the past, seeking to live in the past. In a sense, what God says here, uh, long before the film ever came out, is let's go back to the future. Let's think about what happened in the past and then forget it. Forget what happened in the past because I'm going to do something that is new. Now this verse, verse 19, see I'm doing a new thing. It's a favorite verse of visionaries, charismatics, and, and people everywhere. God's doing a new thing. God's going to do a new thing in this church. God's going to do a new thing in your life. And it all sounds so wonderful. I think it's one of the most misused verses in the whole Bible. Because what is being promised here is, is, I think is quite a specific thing and should not be taken out of context. We can apply it in a general way. But the specific thing is clearly God promising to take his people back. And yet, it's maybe a little bit more. If you look at the Exodus and the promised new thing. In the Exodus, when God sent his curses upon Egypt, what happened? The fish died in the river Nile. The beast of the field died. But here, it changes. Let's go on and you'll see. I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. In the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, the chariots were wiped out. So many people, so many animals died. Here's an image 
that's very different of a wilderness where there is death and God bringing life, bringing the streams, bringing the waters and even the very owls of the desert praising and, and, and proclaiming. Now, why that, that sounds wonderful. It is a problem though. Why, what is the problem? The problem is that there was a return from exile in Babylon around 539 BC. And it wasn't the spectacular thing that happened here. It was a small group of people who returned to Jerusalem, who remained an outpost of the Persian Empire. And I think this promise of return from exile is a pointer, a great pointer towards Christ. And I think that helps us in this. I am doing a new thing. The new thing is Jesus Christ. The new thing is Christ coming to his people. Now, when we use this verse, people will often say things, well, God is doing a new thing in our land, or God is doing a new thing in our church. And there's an element of truth in that, and I hope that that is true. But the promise here is really to point always towards Christ. And we are the other side of the cross. And we are looking at the new thing that God has done in Christ, which may seem an old story, and yet it is ever new. What is particularly moving about the story of the Burmese lady? Why is that moving? I'll tell you why it's moving. Because there is a woman who had never heard of Jesus, and Jesus is new to her. Completely new. And here's what's interesting. She grasps, I think, a lot more of who Jesus is in some ways than people who would profess to be Christian sometimes. Or even, dare I say it, sometimes when we come and we worship. And yet there are many things on our minds, many things that block us from getting a clear understanding of who Jesus is. The new thing is always Christ, is always pointing to Christ. When uh, Isaiah talks about the Holy One, the problem is not that just that Israel needs political liberation, but the problem is how can they be right with a holy God? That is their bigger problem. It is a bigger problem for them than Babylon. The problem for us is not that we live in an increasingly secular and indeed hostile society, Or confused society. The problem is not all the illnesses that we may have. The financial difficulties we may have. And by the way can I absolutely highly recommend the CAP course. Uh, It's very very helpful in, in helping you manage your money. But that's not our major problem. The problem is this in a sense this last bit. The people I form for myself that they may proclaim my praise. How can we be, in the words of Peter, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light? So I want to say to you that your biggest problem, whether you're a Christian or not, and this applies to Christians as well, is that how do we we come into the presence of a holy God? Now, the next bit is, makes it really essential that we know the answer to that. 
Yet you have not called upon me, O Jacob. You have not wearied yourselves from me, O Israel. You have not brought me sheep for burnt offerings, nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demands for incense. You have not bought any fragrant calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. It's an extraordinary thing that God is saying. What he's saying to his own people is your worship's a farce. It's a farce. It's actually tiresome to me. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, if you, if you read those verses, I won't read them just now. But God, is, God lists how their sacrifices and their worship is meaningless. And when we get to this stage in Isaiah, God is really saying, this is why you went into exile. Not because Babylon was strong. Not because of a whole range of different reasons that you might want to identify, but because you turned away from me, though you said that you were worshipping me. What had they done? They'd taken the worship of God, which they gloried in. We worship Yahweh. We worship him according to what he says. And instead of it being a liberating thing, it had become a burden. They had made religion a burden. There was a great deal of religious fervor and religious nationalism, if you want to put it that way, but no religious reality. There was formal practice, but there was unreality. The very thing they prided themselves in, their worship of Yahweh, was the very thing where their most serious deficiency lay. Amos 5, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. It wasn't just the Old Testament prophets who pointed that out. I think the most damning indictment Jesus made of his own people was this. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. The solution to humanity's problems, the solution to Britain's problems, the solution to Scotland's problems, the solution to Dundee's problems or your problems is actually not more religion. The solution is to be found in coming to know and love and serve God and to make sure that your religion is real religion and not false. These people honour me with their lips but their hearts are from me. Now, where this really gets home and where it's hard to look at, and for me, um, this is where it particularly hits me, that very often we will describe what we do in, say, a service like this. I enjoyed that, or that was helpful to me, or I go to church because it helps me, or and so on. That's not God's priority. God's concern is not that we find it helpful, but that he finds it delightful. That's where you get all this about fragrant calamus and, and so on. It's us coming into the presence of God and saying that we are worshipping God, 
But in reality, we are just trying to get things for ourselves to make us feel better, focus everything around us. And it wearies God. Now, how can God be wearied? He's almighty and all-powerful and so on, but he's using our language to tell us the impact that this has. It is not a fragrant offering. It is not pleasing. And part of that makes me really afraid to come and worship because there is always an element of hypocrisy in my life and in your life. There is always an element of things, of of maybe not just an element, a self-absorption. How dare we come into the presence of a holy God who sees it all. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You could be the best preacher in the world. You could be the best praise leader. You could, you could have the holiest look on your face as you, as you sit, but God sees your heart. And what you are doing is not delightful to him. Now, I, I think this emphasis on the, the calamus here and... Um, Sweet cane, it's called, the incense, is about prayer. And it's not the ritual of prayer. It's not just that we pray, but what we are looking for. Our own satisfaction. When we're satisfied, then we won't pray, will we? We say, oh, I'm happy, I'm full, I'm, I've, I've got a nice family. Think, you know, why, would, why would I pray? I'll pray when I'm sick, I'll pray when things are bad. If that's the focus of our prayer. But when the central focus of our prayer or our worship becomes ourselves, then it actually becomes burdensome, not only to God, but also to us. True worship, says Jesus, the Father is looking for those who truly worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, we could say, for example, that uh, we know where we're at in terms of a congregation by the prayer lives that we have, but who of us knows one another's prayer lives? I think it's very, very good that we meet together in prayer. Um, and it's amazing to me, well, it's amazing to me how stupid I am that I'm amazed that it works. I'll give you an example. Um, I'm been in Poland all week and I was really tired and yesterday morning I got up and I, I thought, oh, I don't really want to go down um, to pray. And then I thought, yes, I do. And then I, probably guilt, I don't know. And I just went down and it was just a lovely 30 minutes of just, and I just came away just relieved and thankful. And then just thought, this is crazy. This is crazy. God gives us the gift of prayer and we use it. And I'm talking about myself so infrequently. True worship must be in spirit and in truth. And I think There's a challenge to all of us in different ways in that respect. So how are we made right with a holy God? How, when you are conscious of your own hypocrisy and your own coldness, dare we come into the presence of God? Well, I think the answer is given here. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Review the past for me. It's great, isn't it? He said, don't think about the former things. Now he's saying, review the past. Review the past for me. Let us argue the matter together. State the case for your innocence. Your first father sinned. Your spokesman rebelled against me. So I will disgrace the dignitaries of your temple. And I will consign Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. Now you see what he's saying there. It's very straightforward. He's saying, let's go over the past. You say that you are Israel. I'm telling you 
that what Israel has done in its temple is you have appointed teachers who did not teach me. And you have dignitaries, literally the princes of holiness in your temple who were far from holy. And you say, well, that's not really us. We've progressed. We're different. That's what they were like in the past. But now. But God doesn't let us away with that. The sad fact is that today. We are like Israel in the church. There are those who teach God's people to rebel against God. And there are people. And there are people in this congregation who sit. And who know what the Bible says. And yet says, ah, but. There's no but with God. There's no but with what the Bible says. It is the most abject hypocrisy to come here and sing praise to God and then to go away and during the week deny him by what you say and by what you do. Well, who can stand if that's the standard? And the answer is none of us if it were not for verse 25. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions our solution is to accept that what God says about us and about our hypocrisy and about our turning away from him and his word is true not to justify it not to go ah but some of us are very good at that But it's to reach out to him with both hands and to grasp the forgiveness that he offers. That's what Jesus means when he talks about the faith of the child who just believes. That's what I mean when I think about that Burmese woman who doesn't go, doesn't have years and years of experience of Christian teaching and betrayal and ups and downs and ins and outs and knows nothing about Jesus. And when she hears about Jesus, he is so beautiful. She believes what he says. And she just reaches out and and grabs him. I love this image. There isn't a remedy for the stuff that's wrong with us. There isn't a remedy for our problems. There isn't a remedy for our sin. Not in religion anyway. And not in the sacrifices. The sacrifices point to something. They are not the something. The transgressions are the rebellion against God that can never ever be atoned for by the blood of sheep and goats. Sin leaves a mark. The language used here is of a mark which only the Lord can wipe away. And and here we're told this. He, He is the God who blots out your transgressions for his own sake and doesn't remember your sins. Isn't that an amazing thing? Doesn't remember? There's no kind of collective internet that everything is remembered from the past there's no google to come up and say this is what you did in the past to me this forgiveness is like the shaft of light imagine um this room uh, used to be really really dark and then we've opened up the windows and now it's particularly when the sun shines it's very very light imagine that the screen behind imagine the room was really dark and the screen behind had All your sins written on it. So we admit it's going to be a rolling thing because they're not going to fit on that one screen. So your sins are going round and round and round and round. And you can sit here and that's enough for you to see but other people see. What can can be done about that? Well then imagine that the light comes in from outside and it is so bright that nobody can see. Nobody sees what's written there at all. 
I think that's the wonderful image that is given here. That there is a darkness in someone's heart. There is a darkness in humanity. There is a darkness in the culture. And Christ comes. And through what he does. Through the new thing that he does. The new thing that he is. Forgiveness is granted to us. And that light pierces the darkness. Light of the world. You came down into darkness. The light dominates the darkness. The light obliterates the darkness. I think that that is just a wonderful image for us as believers. Frankel, when he said about meaning, said that um, basically you find meaning in your work, you find meaning in love. In, In a very poignant passage, he talks about how he spoke of his wife every single day he was in Auschwitz. Because it gave him hope, even though he knew that she was probably dead. Just the very fact that he'd loved somebody. You find meaning in your work. You find meaning in love. And he talked about finding meaning in courage through suffering. When I read Frankel, I was, I was so moved by it. In so many ways. Not least because I was reading it beside Auschwitz. But... Uh, It's not enough. When I read him, I thought, I'm sorry, Victor, but it's not enough. It doesn't last. What is the meaning of man? That's what his book's entitled. Man's purpose, humanity's purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then I take the three things he said, and I take about working, and I think about working for God's glory, I take love and I remember that God is love and loving his people. And I think about enduring through suffering and hear Jesus' words of taking up your cross. That's what forgiveness gives you. That's what we need. And I know no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances, whether you're like the Burmese lady who hardly knows nothing about Jesus or whether you're someone who's heard about him over and over and over again, and you're the 88-year-old man who's heard about him all your life, I just simply say to you this, that God's message to you is, confess your sins. He is faithful and just. He forgives your sins. The light of the world has come into the darkness. Amen. May God bless his word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.